You are listening to the Campus Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Dinah Jansen. Each Wednesday on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, I welcome a new guest from Queen's University to discuss news, issues, upcoming events, initiatives, and services for the benefit of Queen's students, faculty, staff, and alumni. Thanks for tuning in to this podcast, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to Campus Beat. In a news story in the Queen's Gazette on September 10th, Victoria Classen wrote a story about mountain building events a billion years ago, a period some geologists have dubbed as the boring billion, arguing that the Earth's very thin crust during this time was a sign that no mountain building events were happening, thus delaying the evolution of life. Chris Spencer Professor of geology here at Queen's University actually disagrees and believes this interpretation goes against the geological record. And with us today to chat about this groundbreaking research is Professor Spencer. Thank you for joining us here on Campus Beat, Chris. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. It's a pleasure to have you in the virtual studio today. So before we launch right in, Chris, can you tell us a little bit about your research and teaching in the Department of Geology at Queen's University? Yeah, so uh, I've been here at Queen's for about a year and a half. Uh, so I'm still still like a, a, I still feel like a newbie here at Queen's. Um, my, my research is primarily focused around using an array of geochemical tools to address global tectonic problems. And tectonic problems being everything from earthquakes and the formation of large rift zones as continents are being torn apart, as well as uh, mountain building events when continents collide together, uh, forming mountain systems like the Alps and the Himalayas. Um, I teach similar courses that are along those similar lines. Um, I teach a course that is specifically focused on the geology of North America. And it's kind of like a time traveling adventure through four and a half billion years of North American history. Um, And then uh, next semester, I'm actually teaching a brand new course to Queens, which is geology of the solar system, in which we will explore um, not just the geology of the rocky inner planets, but also the geology of some of the uh, the moons that are orbiting our outer planets. And then we'll finish off the course talking about uh, exoplanet exploration and how we can use um, proxies from terrestrial geology to help us understand extrasolar planetary evolution. I was going to ask you at some point in this conversation why geology rocks, and I think you just answered the question ahead of time. What an amazing course set that you have. How exciting. Thank you for sharing. So, uh, Chris, uh, going back to your, uh, your recent findings, can you can you paint a picture of what the Earth's landscape in the mid Proterozoic period, literally a billion years ago? Can you paint a picture yeah. for us? Yes. Well, and uh, the the Proterozoic in general. Now, the Proterozoic spans from two point five billion years ago to point uh, to point five billion years ago. So it is a period of time that spans two billion years. Wow. Um, and, uh, and so that's almost half of Earth history that's contained kind of within this one period. And uh, the thing that's fascinating about the Proterozoic is that um, it's during this time when uh, so many things are changing. Um, before the Proterozoic, there was no oxygen in the atmosphere. Huh. It was during the Proterozoic when oxygen concentrations in the atmosphere rose to almost within the, uh, the, the level that we see today. Um, It was also during this period of time when we saw um, dramatic radiation of biota, and many of them 
um, were the, the evolution of those biota were the cause of the rise of atmospheric oxygenation. Um, but then also we see a dramatic shift in tectonic processes. Uh, the, uh, the mountain building processes that we see today in things like the Himalayas and the Andes, um, it's often assumed to have been a process that has continued time immemorial from the very beginning. Um, and in fact, in first year geology courses, we teach about the concept of uniformitarianism. Uh, that is the idea that the geologic processes we see happening today must have been uniform throughout geologic time and must mm -hmm. have been continuous. Um, but the, the problem with extending this idea of uniformitarianism into the geologic past is that not everything about the earth was the same in the geologic past. And, and in particular, probably the most profound shift that we have seen has been the cooling of the mantle. Now, the mantle forms kind of the, the thermal engine of the planet. Mm -hmm. That mid-ocean ridge spreading, like what's happening in the middle of the Atlantic, is driven by mantle heat. Um, the subduction of old oceanic crust underneath the continents that's forming things like the Andes and Japan, and also causing the earthquakes and tsunamis associated with those subduction zones, are in large part influenced and controlled by mantle heat and, and the convection of that heat through the mantle. Now, a billion years ago, the mantle was hotter and, it, and, and we hypothesized that it could be as much as 100 to 150 degrees Celsius hotter. And, uh, and although that doesn't seem like a lot, uh, I mean, 100 degrees between zero and 100, water goes from ice to, to vapor, but rocks don't change much. That if you took a rock that was sitting at the surface and you, then you put it in an oven up to 150 degrees Celsius, nothing would happen. Yeah. But if you think about the mantle being this huge thermal reservoir and you increase the temperature of that thermal reservoir, that entire reservoir, 150 degrees Celsius, um, it's very likely going to have a tremendous influence on the way that the crust responds to deformation and through kind of these tectonic forces. And so the ideas that we, that we um, propose in this paper is that the mid-Proterozoic was dramatically affected by increased mantle heat that is translated through the crust. Now, you ask the question about Earth's landscape, and I suspect that actually Earth's landscape would not have looked that dramatically different than, say, um, the, the Sahara Desert, um, that there, there were places that were, that were quite dry. There were also places that were quite wet. Mm -hmm. uh, the reason why I say that most of the landscape would have looked like the Sahara Desert is because there were no land plants a billion years ago. Right. Land plants didn't evolve uh, and didn't, didn't colonize um, the kind of subaerially exposed continental crust until around 450-ish million years ago. So you go back another 550 million years ago, there's no plants, and you would have just seen a vast barren wasteland um, of, of sand and stones. And, wow. uh, and so then when it comes to things like the mountains, um, this is where there's a, a considerable disagreement that um, some have argued, in particular because of geology here just north of us in, in Kingston, here in, in what's called the Grenville province, that there was a large mountain system that would have been very similar to the Himalayas. And um, in fact, in the Miller Museum downstairs here on campus, there is an exhibit 
that refers to the Himalayas as kind of like baby mountains that are very young, only about 50 million years old. And the Grenville Mountains that are north of us um, are the old grandma. And, and yet they are very similar. They're the same type of tectonic scenario, but one is very old and one is very young. Um, however, in this recent paper that you'd mentioned that was published by actually some friends of mine, um, they had argued that um, using some geochemical proxies, they constrained the thickness of the continental crust to be very, very thin. Mm -hmm. and, and that actually during this period of time in the mid Proterozoic, um, that it was thinner than it had ever been in geologic time. And they, they made a connection between the formation of mountain systems today, like the Himalayas, where you, you collide two continents, in the case of the Himalayas, India and Eurasia, and that leads to significant thickening of the crust. So the crust mm -hmm. goes from kind of its average 40 kilometers thick up to uh, upwards of 80 kilometers thick. Oh, wow. And okay. so they thought, all right, so if we have a really thin crust um, and normally mountain building is associated with thickening crust, that must mean that there just weren't a lot of big mountains during that time. The implication of that is that if there's no big mountains, it means there's not a lot of erosion. And, and erosion becomes important for life and the evolution of life because it's erosion of these mountains that brings nutrients and in particular things like phosphorus into uh -huh. the oceans that, that then feeds the, the various sea critters that eventually would evolve to, to us. Uh -huh. and, and so if you take away the mountains, you take away the nutrients, and therefore you kind of um, stall the evolution of life. Okay. Now, that's, that's kind of where, where my research comes in, because I have spent the past decade or so looking at um, the mountain systems of the Proterozoic. And I visited these mountain systems on five different continents. And what's fascinating is that they're very, very similar. Um, no matter where you look at them, whether it's in Southern Africa or Western Australia or Central China or Northern Canada, uh, they all look very similar. And there's lots and lots of really hot crust, crust that was heated to the point that it started to melt and flow. But you also see a significant amount of deformation. You see rocks that are not just kind of flat and planar, but these rocks are contorted and bent, and they've really gone through a torturous process. Um, and so I was a bit surprised to read this paper saying that there were, there were no big mountains. There was, there was a tectonic quiescence during this period of time. The, the boring billion? That's right. Yeah. And they refer to this as the boring billion. And now the term the boring billion, I do want to talk about that for a minute because um, originally the boring billion was given this name or the mid Proterozoic was given the name, the boring billion, because there's not a lot of mineral deposits hmm. that are of this age. There's okay. lots of mineral deposits that are older than that, that are two and a half billion years old. And then there's lots of mineral deposits that are much younger than that. But there's a period of time from about 1.9 to about 0.8 billion years um, where there's just not a lot going on in terms of mineral deposits. So, mm -hmm. so these researchers then appropriated this term to say, well, it's not only boring because there's not a lot of mineral deposits, but it's also boring because we don't see any large changes in the biosphere, at least from what we can see in the rocks. And it's boring because there doesn't seem to be a lot of large mountain building uh, processes. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, or mountain building events. 
So, um, so I was a little bit confused because um, from my research, uh, I, I would argue that actually this period of time was there, there was a lot going on and that there were a lot of continental collisions. There were, there were a lot of big mountain systems that stretch across the entire continents. Um, but at the same time, I couldn't refute their geochemical proxy arguing for thin crust. And, and I actually think that, that that's a really foundational discovery um, and using these geochemical proxies to figure out how thick the crust was going back in geologic time. And so the question then was, how do we reconcile these two things? How do we reconcile the thinness of the continental crust and the fact that we have what appears to be a global system of mountains um, that stretch across every continent on the planet? And, uh, and I think the, where the light bulb kind of turned on for me was the amount of melted rocks that we see or the amount of rocks that at, at, at the time, a billion years ago, were partially molten. Mm -hmm. And the only way that you're going to get that is if there's a lot of heat that's, that's really fluxing from the mantle into the crust and it's causing these rocks to melt anywhere between about 650 to 800 degrees Celsius. And, and then uh, what happens when rocks start to melt is their competency just diminishes. Their, their strength just evaporates and they're not able to kind of hold themselves up. And so if you can imagine it like some, if you think about reverse cooking brownies. And so when brownies are cooked, you can pick it up and you can have like a nice big thick slab of brownies. Yeah. But if you go, if you go then like 20 minutes earlier in the cooking process and you try to cut out a, a piece of brownie and you pick it up, it's just gonna gloop. It's not gonna stick together. And so we think that this may be an explanation for the reason why the crust was so thin during this time is because the mountains were so hot. So you imagine now two continents come together and they collide mm -hmm. and you try to build up these big mountain systems. There's all kinds of deformation and contortion happening in the rocks, but the rocks are just too darn hot. And so they just slough down, they flow laterally. And, and then we actually see a lot of geologic structures that support this idea of lateral flow in, the, uh, in these mid-Proterozoic mountain systems. Wow. And so where, where some say that this period of time in the mid-Proterozoic is boring, um, we would say it's not boring, it's just really hot. <laughs> hot stuff indeed. So... Wow. The, the, thank you so much for explaining all of this for us, for, for us non-specialists out there. And, and, and again, for non-specialists, I'd, I'd really like to hear more about how the research in the field is actually done on the day-to-day. -day. So you mentioned you visited five continents. Where did you go? How did you find your samples? What did you do with those samples in the field or, or even in your lab? And, 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 and ultimately arrive at your conclusions. In short, how do you actually do the science? Sure, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so I, uh, I was very fortunate during my PhD to be able to travel around a lot. Um, so much so that it, it really started to worry my mother because I was traveling to these far off exotic places and, uh, and, and I'll tell you about some of those adventures, but she was quite worried about me. And she said, she said Chris, how do I know that you're okay? And I said, well, don't worry, mom, I'm going to start a blog. And so I called the blog, The Traveling Geologist. And, uh, and so from this little blog, I would then share some of my, some of my adventures and, and tell my mom that I was okay. 
And, uh, and you can still find it today that it's now grown to be something a bit bigger than just me sharing my adventures. But um, yeah, we're, we're still sharing adventures on traveling geologists. And from the research that I did as, as, a, uh, as a PhD student, I went to Northern Scotland. And that was kind of where I started everything off because I did my PhD in, in Scotland at the University of St. Andrews. And so Scotland was kind of the first, uh, the first stop. And uh, traveling through Northern Scotland is kind of exactly what you would think uh, if you've seen the movie Highlander. It's pretty stereotypical, lots of sheep, lots of kilts. And, uh, and we'd collect samples in the pouring rain uh, and we'd bring those samples back to our labs and we'd, we'd crush them up and we'd extract certain minerals, specific minerals to help us understand how old the rocks were. And we'd pull those minerals out we then vaporize those minerals and measure their isotopic signatures in it to figure out how old they were and the types of conditions under which they formed. Mm -hmm. um, and then I also had the opportunity to go to do some field work in northern Labrador, um, which was which was quite an exciting adventure um, where we just drove for uh, about a week just all over northern Labrador um, collecting samples. Now, northern Labrador was quite nice because um, there's a lot of quarrying that is being done for mineral exploration. And so we would just go into these abandoned quarries and we would then find rocks that were, uh, that were um, indicative of the types of kind of these melting textures that we would see and we'd collect those samples. And, and with some of these rocks, we would um, cut a small little like domino shaped piece of the rock. Okay. We would then polish one side and glue it to a piece of glass. And then on the other side, we would shave that rock down until it was so thin that it was thinner than a human hair, so thin that we could put it under a microscope and shine light through it. And we call this a thin section. And we would use the thin sections to understand the, the different minerals in the rock. And then we could use our kind of microanalytical techniques to then shoot laser beams and electron beams at these minerals to measure their chemistry to, again, figure out when they formed and how they formed at what temperatures when these rocks were actually forming and melting. Um, and then some of the more exciting stories uh, happened when I went to Southern Africa. And, and I, uh, uh, I don't advise this, but I actually went alone to, to Namibia. And, uh, and I was there for about three weeks uh, in, uh, in what the uh, Namibians call a bucky. Uh, and a bucky is their word for a truck. And so there I am driving through the Namibian deserts uh, alone and, uh, and uh, just, just my thoughts and the rocks around me to keep me company. And, uh, and I would collect rocks from what they called nun attacks. And the nun attacks uh, are very similar to, to the nun attacks that we have up north. But in this case, they are not rocks poking out from the sand or from the ice. In this case, they're rocks poking up from the sand dunes. Okay. And uh, in German, they call them Inselbergs. Uh, and so these are like island mountains that are just poking up out of the sand. And so I would have to then drive through the dunes, through the sand dunes to get to some of these Inselbergs and then would climb up through the mountains and, and collect the samples that I needed. Um, getting samples out of these kind of far off places is sometimes a challenge. And uh, the, the um, airlines never really liked me too much because I would usually show up to the airport with buckets and buckets of rocks and I would just <laughs> claim them. I'd say, this is my excess luggage. I've got to have it on the plane with me. And these were too precious for me. I to promise ship it's my, not my polonium. <laughs> That's right. Yes. And actually there, there were many cases where uh, the, the police, I'd hear my name come over the intercom and they, they, 
they'd call me over to the baggage area and there were the police there and they said, we need you to open these buckets and show us what's in these buckets. Yeah. And, uh, and a lot of people are thinking I'm smuggling out gold or diamonds. And, and I said, no, these are just boring granites. These like for you guys, th- there's, there's nothing of interest here, but for me, <laughs> these are really exciting. Are they scanning and, uh, these with like radioactive <laughs> search? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> like, like there were Geiger counters that were pulled out. They put them through the x-rays. And then, and like, of course I had them all wrapped up in bubble wrap because I didn't want to damage them while right. they were in transit. And so like, well, if the, these must be special, like why would you wrap them up in bubble wrap if they're just boring rocks? So yeah, there was, there was some, some interesting times there dealing with uh, <laughs> customs agents and police officers. But. Feels very 007 almost. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing a little bit about the actual process of, uh, of extracting your samples and what you actually do with them. That's, it's really neat to understand this from, uh, from a non-specialist point of view. What does it actually look like in the field and in the lab? Thank you so much for sharing. Now, uh, Chris, I, I got to ask too. So what are the implications of your research findings for understanding things like Earth's evolution, let alone things like long-term climate change or the availability of uh, re- natural resources such as minerals? Yeah, and, and that's, a, that's a really good question. And, and I think um, a lot of times I, uh, I, I see my research as not really connected to things like long-term climate change or specific to, to mineral exploration and uh, because my science is particularly motivated just by my own curiosity and it's very mm-hmm. much science for the sake of science. However, uh, I think that it's really important to remember that um, what was once thought to be a very much kind of static system, like the earth was thought to be the same today and then going back forever, time immemorial. Um, we, we're now starting to understand that no, the earth is an evolving thing, that it is changing. It is, um, it is both cooling down from the mantle's perspective. And then in certain periods of time, we get these fluxes of mantle energy that totally change the way the crust forms and deforms. And, and so if we're going to understand the future of our planet and what's coming next and how this is all going to um, kind of affect human civilization, we also need to understand where we came from. We need to understand the, the, um, the rates of change. And I think that's really important for us if we're going to compare. So for example, in the case of the climate crisis that we're facing now, we, we then can compare other climate crises that we see in the geologic record. And in fact, fact, at the end of the mid-Proterozoic, we had um, what was called the snowball earth, where the entire planet was just covered with a thick layer of ice. And that was a a pretty big crisis, that the entire planet covered with ice. But if we then compare the timescales between Mm -hmm. the climate crisis we're facing today and how quickly things change, and the climate crises that have happened in the geologic past, what we see in the present is that it's happening far faster than what we've ever seen in geologic time. And the only reason we would know that our current situation is such an anomaly is because we can go back in geologic time and do those tests to really evaluate how things have changed. Um, And then when it comes to natural resources, um, I think Gone are the days when you can just walk up a river and you can pull out your gold pan and you can just find gold nuggets in the river. The Mm -hmm. the easy to find mineral resources have already been found. 
And what we need to now be looking for are new ways that we can explore for mineral resources. And a lot of those new ways to explore for mineral resources are specifically dependent upon our understanding of how the rocks form, how certain chemicals and molecules are concentrated in the Earth's crust. And in particular, in this kind of boring billion period, um, it's becoming less and less boring the more and more we are understanding uh, various rock types. And in particular, there's uh, a new, uh, not new, but, but a newly important brand of minerals called rare earth elements that are minerals that are containing rare earth elements. And these rare earth elements are particularly important for, um, I guess, our green economy, if you want to call it that, as we are transitioning from predominantly a fossil fuel based um, uh, economy and energy-based system to a more renewable-based system. We need these rare earth elements in order to build things like turbines and solar panels. And the, the boring billion, or let's now call it the not-so-boring billion, um, is actually home to a lot of mineral deposits that have been recently been discovered that are rich in these rare earth elements. In fact, one of the largest deposits that is um, currently being, uh, that is not being exploited is in Greenland. And, and as you can imagine, uh, climate change is playing a big role in Greenland's future. And as Greenland has kind of this pseudo autonomous political state, and as there's various relationships with Canada, as well as with uh, the Europeans, um, these deposits um, that, that kind of sit right within this period of the not so boring billion um, are going to be really important for our future um, of natural resources and the sustainability of our technologically advanced civilization. Mm, so heavy geopolitical implications too. Okay. Indeed. Yeah, totally. So tell us now, Chris, where we can find your recent paper. How do we access it? Well, so it was published in the Journal of Geophysical Research Letters. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and it is free to view, uh, and so, so no problems there, but I will also have a copy of the uh, paper posted on my website, which is tectonochemistry.com, uh, and, uh, and you, can, you can find it under the publication section of my website. Mm. I also wonder if we could invite you on to uh, do a viewing of Star Trek and Firefly and the terraforming events that sometimes happen in these series. Yeah. And so you could deconstruct what's wrong or what's yeah. happening in there for us. <laughs> do fact, you, do I, uh, I do that in some of my classes that, uh, that we oftentimes will have in pre-COVID times, we would have a movie night where it's like, all right, everyone, we're going to watch the core tonight. And uh, we're going to talk about all the problems with the core. And, uh, and so then for my class next semester, the geology of the solar system, I'm already planning movie nights where we're going to talk about terraforming and panspermia and all of those exciting, exciting topics. <laughs> Lots indeed. Anything else to add before we close today, Chris? I, I don't think so. That, that's, that's all from me. This is a lot of fun. <laughs> Thank you so much, folks. We have been talking with Professor Chris Spencer of the Department of Geology about his recent paper and groundbreaking research uh, related to mountain building around the so-called boring billion period, which isn't, in fact, a boring period at all. Thank you so much for joining us, Chris. We really do appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.